Turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 9. And I see better without my glasses than I do with them. These are, these are uh, 10-year-old glasses because last night I broke the frames on the current glasses that I have, which I also can't see out of. So it's... <laughs> so <laughs> I can see better read without them. So 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 18. The Apostle Paul writing, of course, to Timothy says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychius, uh, Tychius, I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I have left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works." You you also must be aware of him, or beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At first, my defense, no one stood with me. At my first uh, first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to speak to you today on the subject, consolation in isolation. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, touch us now. Put your word in our mouth. Lord, let it fall on our ears. Let it be engrafted into our hearts. And for that we thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise for his word. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I know what you might be thinking. Consolation and isolation. You're thinking you're about five months late preaching that message to us because it was only just a few months ago that we were all somewhat in isolation. However, there's still a lot of us in isolation, and we still have members of this, of this church, uh, some that are elderly. You know, I've, I've gone to some of their homes and visited with them and spoke with others on the phone, and it's, it's hard to blame them for not getting out quite yet. It's, it really is, especially some of them have respiratory issues, and those kinds of things. It's, it, you want to say, boy, we sure miss you in church, come on and be with us, and we're doing everything we can to keep you safe, but we understand that there are some people that are still uh, experiencing that. Things are better at the nursing home than they were. Uh, we're able to see my grandmother uh, twice a week out on the porch, not able to hug her. She's not able to see our beautiful faces uh, because we have to wear masks, but we are able to talk with her face to face. They're better than they were, but you know, they're still not going down to lunch together, they, they pretty much spend about, I would say, uh, 96-97% of their time is right there in their rooms uh, because they're having to be isolated for health reasons. Uh, 
our own um, uh, Pastor Aaron, along with uh, others in this church that have contracted. And as far as I know, nobody has contracted COVID from coming to church. We've been very, very blessed by the Lord for that. But we have had a few people from elsewhere uh, get that. Now, thankfully, our people that have done that have had enough common sense to stay, to stay home and not spread it. But, uh, you know, I, I'm really not exaggerating when I tell you that when Aaron was quarantined those 14 days, he literally did not leave his room for 14 days. Uh, his sister that lived with him would not let him out of his room. He was in prison. So we know a little bit more now about isolation than we did. Of course, you know, my wife's a teacher. Here's what's happening in our public school system right now. If somebody has symptoms and they test positive, not only are they quarantined, but whatever child said on either side of them in any particular class is quarantined. So you can have as many as you know, 14, 15 students out because they had contact and they're quarantined for 14 days. There was, there was one poor girl that I'm aware of. She hasn't had COVID but she is on her second round of 14-day uh, you know, isolation from the school because she sat by somebody that had it, went home 14 days, came back, was in school two days, sat by somebody else that had it, had to go back home for 14 days more. So we're living in a time where we understand a little bit more about being isolated than we did. I was joking around uh, Today, uh, I'm about to bust to hug somebody. It's hard to be in church and not hug people. But if, if you did hug somebody, uh, there would be alarms go off, flashing lights, and the SWAT team would come down and take you away, and you'd never be seen anymore. It feels like that. There are three types, I think, of isolation that we, we tend to deal with. One is being shut in, and that's probably the most common type of isolation being shut in. Uh, this usually comes about from a person's uh, health issues. They're just not able to get out. They're not able to go and they're not able to do. Whether that is because they are contagious or because they have a low immune system and they are afraid of coming in contact with others that are contag contagious or they just don't feel well, or some of them are, are bedridden, some are invalid, They're, they are shut-ins, and they are not able to get out and go. Sometimes this happens not only with sickness, it happens with a person's age. They're, they're frail, they're not able to go and do because they, they stumble, they, they, you know, they have trouble walking, they just, they're shut-ins. And boy, what a feeling of isolation comes with that. And so we have a whole segment of our senior adults that battle with depression and it's brought on by isolation. They just don't, they just don't have contact with people. And everybody, even the most introverted among us, everybody needs some interaction with people. Now people need it to varying degrees. Some people need a whole lot of it. Some people just need a little bit of it, but everybody needs some of it. We're just not created to be hermits. We were created to be in a community. And then there is not only shut-ins, there are those that are shut out. There are people that are ostracized from society. 
There are people that are shut out of their families. They're, they're estranged. Uh, I know in, in our own family, we had a relative that cut themselves off from, from, our, uh, from a family member for about 20 years. It was just, they were just, if they saw each other, uh, he was not happy to see her. He kind of, you know, they, she tried to hug him. He'd push her away. Just very little contact. There are people that by their own choice or by the choice of others are, are shut out. And this, this often happens to, uh, to some degree, uh, even in churches, that there are circles of, of fellowship and friendship in churches that when you're on the inside of that circle, it feels wonderful. But when you're on the outside of that circle, it feels cold. And people inside the circle don't always know that they're shutting other people out. Because they, they don't think about it, but people that are outside of that, and there are people that are shy, bashful, or socially awkward, that are wonderful people, but because they don't mix easily, they often feel shut out when if somebody will notice and go to the length of reaching out to them, they actually find that they're wonderful people. But, but that's a deliberate thing that we have to do. And that's in any time people get together, whether it's in a school or a place of business or whatever. There are people often, often that feel shut out. And then there are those that are, are shut up. And I'm not talking about being silent. I'm talking about those that are confined. There are people that are imprisoned. They have been shut up so that, that they no longer have uh, the ability, the freedom. And then there are people that, uh, through no fault of their own, are shut up for health reasons. In other words, they're in the hospital, they're in the nursing home, Right now, we're experiencing that. People that are shut off from others and they're shut up in, in, in a facility because they're no longer able to be around others because of, of various reasons. Now, the Apostle Paul was in this latter category when he wrote this letter to Timothy. He was imprisoned. Now, there's some letters in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote that he wrote from house arrest. He did not have his freedom, but he did have some comfort. He was, he was in, in a house, a rented house. He had guards there, but he had a, as long as he didn't leave that house and leave, he had a lot of freedom of movement. He could have visitors in. Uh, he could do the things that he wanted to do, but he was under house arrest. Now, now that's a difficult position to be in. But it's not as bad as staring at stone walls and a cold floor and, and, you know, rats and mice crawling across the floor. But that's where he found himself here. When he writes to Timothy, he is in a prison. He is in the basement of the Mamertine prison in Rome. He, he, he is having a difficult time in life. He, he doesn't have much creature comforts at all. And from this letter, as he ends this letter, now, when you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's hard to skip over Paul's declaration where he says, I'm now ready to be offered. I've fought a good fight. 
I've kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness uh, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me and not to me only, but all those that love his appearing. It, it, it's a victorious passage that he has. It's hard to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and skip over his charge to Timothy. Timothy, be instant, in season, out of season. Preach the word. You know, get about the Father's business. Do the things that you've been charged to do. All of that is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But, but this section, these nine verses uh, that we have here that I read to you, this section is where I think, whether meaning to or not, he reveals to us the things that people need in isolation. So whether you're shut in, shut out, or shut up, these are things you need when you feel isolated. The first one is companionship. People just need to know that somebody cares. And so he's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he says, Timothy, do your best to come see me. Make sure you make, be, be diligent. This is verse 9. Be diligent to come to me quickly. I think he knew it wasn't long before his death. I don't think he knew. I think his death was probably quicker than he thought. But I, I think he knew the time was nearing from his words. And he said, make it a priority, Timothy, and don't be sluggish about it. Don't wait. Come see me. My own grandmother uh, often, of course, she's always been a person her whole life. This isn't starting in, in old age. All of her life, she's wanted to be surrounded by people and have a party atmosphere in a good way. But always, she's always, she just, just feeds off of the energy of being around family and friends. But when we go to leave, she'll say, come back and see me now. said, you... This is all that I get right now is these 30 minutes twice a week that we have face to face. Come back to see me. When are you going to come see me? Are you coming the next time? Are you, I mean, she wants to know, and I would too in her situation. So he says, Paul, he says, Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly. And then he, then he says, because some people have forsaken me. Demas, who was listed as... Paul's fellow worker. Now when you're listed in a, a list of peers to the Apostle Paul, that's, that's pretty good. When you're a peer on peer level, he said he's my fellow worker, but Demas, and we don't know exactly what it means having loved this present world. We don't know if this means his, his comfort. We don't know if it means money. We don't know if he had some moral issues. We don't, know, we don't know what the love was of this present world that, that kind of uh, drew him away. But he said, he forsook me and has departed for Thessalonica, which may have been his home. He went home. He couldn't take it. And then these are not condemnations of, of the others, but he's saying Crescens has gone to Galatia. He didn't say he forsook him, but he's gone. Titus for Dalmatian. Titus uh, did not forsake him. Titus probably was running an errand for the Apostle Paul, but he still wasn't there. 
He was no longer there. He said, only Luke, who was a physician, only Luke is still with me. And then this is very interesting. He says, get Mark and bring him. Now, you remember that the greatest missionary team that the world's ever known was Paul and Barnabas. And Barnabas had a nephew named John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark, who went on a missionary journey with them, their first missionary journey, and halfway through got homesick and left them and went home. And so the next time that they started to go on a missionary journey, Barnabas said, hey, let's give old John Mark another chance. And Paul said, no way. We don't need quitters. We've got a job to do. No way. And, and there was such a heated exchange between and such a disagreement, it drove a wedge between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. And they split up the team. Now, that doesn't sound like the way Christians ought to behave, but it sounds like the way Christians do, don't it? <laughs> And so they split up the team over John Mark. But here, Paul's at the end of his life and he's in prison. And he says, now look, when he had plenty of people around him, might have been different, but he had time to think about some things. And he said, hey, bring Mark. And it wasn't just bring Mark because I want to see him and I need him and I need fellowship. It's also bring Mark because he has now proven that he's useful for the ministry. Which good for Mark, he didn't let the one time of being homesick keep him from becoming what the Lord wanted him to be. He did mature, he did become what the Lord wanted him to be. And so he's given him a second chance, but he said he's useful for the ministry. And he said he also took, sent uh, Tychicus to Ephesus. So Paul needed companionship in isolation. James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And here's the interesting thing about that word visit. That word visit actually means to look upon. It means to inspect. And I didn't mean to make this lesson about my grandmother, but this, this just happens to fit. When my dad goes, this whole time that my grandmother's been in the nursing home, when my dad goes to visit my uh, grandmother in the nursing home, he doesn't just go to see her. He doesn't just go for her to see him. He doesn't just go to have the fellowship. He goes for that reason, and that's, that's a good enough reason to go, but he also goes to look in on her. He goes to see how she's doing. He goes to make sure she's being cared for. He goes to make sure that they're putting clean clothes on her every day. He goes to make sure that they're keeping her clean, that she's well fed, that she's cared for. So he goes with the eye, not only of providing emotionally for her needs, but making sure her physical needs are met. So when the Bible says visit orphans and widows, the father of some widows, it, I don't think it just means go and spend some time with them. I think it means look after them. 
care for them. Which part of that care is spending time with them. But part of that care is when you go and the widow doesn't have enough food, you take her some food. When you go and the widow says, you know, I got a doctor's appointment on Tuesday, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. You say, well, we'll get somebody to get you there. You see what I'm saying? So companionship not only has to do with being with somebody, but it means caring for somebody, being a companion. So people in isolation need companionship. People in isolation need comfort. This is verse 13. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. So the first thing Paul said is I need warmth. He is in a dank, uh, cold, uh, dusky prison cell. It's probably late summer going on into fall and winter. And he said, I left a real nice coat, a real nice cloak with, uh, with carpus. When you come, bring that to me. That in a physical, real sense, I just, I, I'm cold and I need to wrap up. But it also speaks to us that not only physically, but emotionally, people when they're isolated need warmth. They need care. They need the comfort that comes with friends and family. And then he also uh, revealed to us that there's comfort not only in warmth, but there's comfort in wisdom. He said, bring the books and especially the parchments with you. That during this time of isolation, I need to feed my mind. I need to keep my mind active. I don't need to sit here and count my troubles. I don't need to to worry myself to death. I need something to put in the, the, the thinker here. I need something to keep me encouraged. I've got to keep my mind occupied and wisdom. I remember when I was uh, 22, I had an accident and I, I broke this leg in two places and I was off the off the road for about, uh, I was an evangelist, I was off the road for about six months. What a wonderful time for me to invest myself in the study of God's Word. But I didn't do it. I spent six months watching TV and hollering for Mama, hey, bring me a glass of tea. See, you can, you can choose even in isolation to make it a productive time. Even in isolation, you could say, you know, God has not set me aside. He set me apart. Here's a time that I can improve myself. So he said, bring me the books and the parchments. And then here's the thing. For Paul, books and parchments were his work. Yeah, he had been a a tent maker at one time. But but. How we know Paul isn't because we've we've seen his tents. We know him because he wrote most of the New Testament. Fourteen books of our New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. So he says, I'm going to keep busy. I'm not only going to do things that are beneficial for me in in helping me, but I'm going to keep busy while I'm in isolation. That even in isolation, you can be productive 
not only in improving yourself, but, but also staying busy in work that improves somebody else, that helps somebody else. So he said, I'm going to work. And then there was involved, I think, in the books and parchments, worship. I'm going to feed my spirit while I'm in isolation. Bring me those books. Bring me those parchments. Bring me something that will help me draw closer to the Lord. Give me something that will keep me spiritually minded. William Tyndale, who uh, was uh, helped to translate uh, the scripture, uh, about 1,500 years after the Apostle Paul was in prison for translating the scripture himself, and, and he wrote to somebody and said almost the exact same thing. He said, bring me my warm cap, bring me something to repair my, my leggings, my pants, got holes in them, and make sure you bring me the Hebrew Bible that I've got. So in prison, he, he had the same priorities. I, I love this little story. There was a, a, a Scottish doctor, his name was W.P. McKay, and when he was, uh, he was raised by a godly mother that poured the gospel in him. But, but when, he, when he got into his teen years, he rebelled against his mother, rebelled against God. He, he got very wild. And his mother continued to try to pour Jesus in him. He would get mad. He'd turn a deaf ear. And his mother one day gave him a Bible and wrote wrote a greeting to him, some words of wisdom in his Bible. In her own handwriting, she wrote, she wrote his name and wrote him some things in his Bible. And when he went off to school, uh, one day he, he went and took that Bible. He'd give out of money. He went and pawned that Bible in a pawn shop and got a little bit of money for him to go and probably blow it on wine, women, and song. In spite of his lifestyle, he did study and become a doctor. And after several years of, of being a doctor, he would had a young man that came into the hospital that was, had gotten injured at work. He had gotten crushed. And it was obvious that the young man's uh, injuries were going to prove fatal. And so he spent a lot of time with the young man, checked on him daily, and he asked, he kind of broke the news to him in a roundabout way that he was going to die. He said, do you have any family, any friends that you want us to call in to be with you? And he said, no, I don't. He said, but if you'll, if you'll get my landlady to come, because I, I owe her some rent and I want to pay my landlady. And he said, would you please tell her to bring my book? Please tell her to bring my book. And so they did. They got a hold of the landlady, and the landlady brought him, brought him uh, his book. And as he laid there and suffered through the last day of his life, William McKay said, uh, W.P. McKay said, every time I'd go in and see him, he would have almost a smile on his face. In spite of his suffering, he would seem to be at such peace and such ease, even though he's in great pain and dying. And when he died, the nurse took the young man's book and said to W.P. McKay, he said, what do you want me to do with this? He said, what is it? He said, it's his book. 
She said, you know, it's a strange thing. As long as he was still able to read, he would read in that book. And said, whenever uh, he was no longer able to read, he would, he would sleep and try to rest with that, with that book up against him, up under his covers. And so the W.P. McKay, Dr. McKay said, well, let me see that book. And he took the book and he opened it up and he saw his own name written in his mother's handwriting. It was the same Bible that all those years before he had sold at the pawn shop. And he says from that experience, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus. That book that had brought that young man such peace was that same Bible that his mother gave him. He became a Christian and a hymn writer. He went on to write, you may have heard these words. We praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory, revive us again. So when we're in isolation, we can find consolation in God's book. Amen. And then there is, and this is, a, this, this is where it kind of can take a little bit of a negative term. There is the, there is the challenge that we face in isolation. Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. I, I call this part of the challenge musing. Musing. In fact, here's what uh, Psalm 39 and 3 says. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. That in isolation, we have a lot of time to think. And if we're not careful as we muse, there comes back to our mind old hurts, old offenses, old disagreements. And if we think on them long enough, we can get mad about them all over again. In isolation, a person can become bitter, resentful, they can count their enemies instead of counting their friends. This is a challenge that we face in isolation. Does this scripture reveal that Paul was struggling with bitterness? That he was struggling with resentment? Well, even though Paul was such a great man, he was, he was no different than any of us in having to struggle with human emotions and human frailties. Even Elijah that called down fire out of heaven was a man of like passions as we were. The only one that never sinned was the Lord Jesus Christ and even the Lord Jesus Christ was still tempted to sin. But he never sinned. So that temptation to be bitter Paul would not have been beyond that just because he was a great spiritual man any more than any of the rest of us. But I don't think that that's why he brings it up. I don't think he brings it up because he's wanting to, uh, 
to, to get a gig in at a last enemy. And we don't know exactly what Alexander the coppersmith did to him. It's speculated that he may have kind of spied on Paul as a Christian brother and then reported things to the authorities. But we don't know that. But I do want you to understand in Paul mentioning this, it reveals something to us about life. And that is as Christians, we walk a fine line between justice and mercy. There are Christians that think that mercy is, is antagonistic against justice. That those are crossways. There, there are people that say, well, you know, if somebody commits murder and they say, I'm sorry, we ought to just let them walk free. <laughs> no. What kind of world would we live in if justice was not served? Right? But yet there are people that say, I know they got to go to prison, but I can forgive them. They murdered my loved one, but I can walk in. And, and they reach out, even though the person's paying the price for what they did, they reach out, they go visit them, they find forgiveness. Some, at times there's been Christians that have led the, the ones that abused, molested, or murdered their own loved ones. They've led them to Christ because they walked in mercy. God's forgiveness is not simply based, and hear me out here, but God's forgiveness of us is not simply based on God's mercy. It is based on the fulfillment of God's justice in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is such a just God, he could not, it would have gone against his own character for him to forgive us of sin that had not been paid for. If, if the Lord took a light view of sin and sin didn't have to be paid for, there would have been no need for Calvary. God could have just said, oh, forget about that. Yeah, that's just, you're just human. You, you know, you just scraped your knee. Don't worry about it. No, God took sin so serious, it required somebody to die for sin. And when you look at Calvary, yes, you see God's love for sinners, but you also see God's absolute hatred for sin. He hated sin so much that Jesus was crushed, he was bruised, he was beaten, he was sped upon, all of that. His side was riven, all of that to pay the price for sin. It was God's justice being poured out on Jesus. That's how we can be saved. We're not saved because God turns a back, blind eye to our sin, sweeps it under the rug. We're, we can be forgiven because the price has already been paid. The books have been balanced. So to be a Christian doesn't mean that we despise justice. Because if you despise justice when it's distracted on those that have done evil, that means that those that had evil perpetrated upon them are not getting what they deserve, what they need. And it's amazing to me how some progressive and liberal-minded folks have more sympathy for people that commit crimes than they do the people that are victims of crimes. 
I, I don't want to go too far with this because I know it's a hot topic issue. But, but, but people that have a mentality whenever someone, and I know, look, sometimes police make the wrong decision. Sometimes there's police brutality. Some people, sometimes people are motivated by impure motives, and sometimes that motive is race. All of those things are true. But it's amazing how that people that will protest because some drug dealer, uh, you know, gets shot because he's in the middle of a crime, and they'll protest against that are some of the same mindset that two police officers minding their own business sitting in a car get shot in the head and there are protesters outside their hospital saying, we hope you die. Now folks, that's, that's a lack of justice. That's hatred toward authority. So don't think that being a Christian means that to love mercy is to despise justice. In fact, here's what the Bible says. Here's what God requires of us. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So justice and mercy are not in a battle royal against each other. So when Paul brings up the fact that Alexander did him harm, and may the Lord repay him according to his works, he's establishing the fact there is going to be a righteous judgment someday. And people that do evil and do not repent of evil are going to have to face the judgment of God. Now, I, I don't want to belabor this point, and, and we're going to get there. I'm going to get you out in an hour. Don't worry. I don't want to belabor this point, but I do want to tell you where this applies. I was on what could be called the, the board of a Christian organization. And a staff member of that organization was caught red-handed red -handed stealing money from that organization. And so it was brought before uh, this, uh, this ruling body of which I was a part. And there, all of us had known that staff member a long time and some people had known them a really long time and even had uh, you know, more connections with them. And the head of the organization said, what do you think we ought to do? And it was decided that for the sake of uh, to keep away you know, from negative feedback. Um, charges were not going to be pressed, but the person was going to be obviously let go. And somebody on that board said, do we have to let them go? Can't we just move them to a different, uh, a, a different area? Can't we just move them to a different position? And I spoke up and I said, no, we can't move them to a different position. Are, are, you, are you kidding me? Well, we need to show mercy. I said, we're showing mercy by not throwing them in jail. You know, <laughs> we got a responsibility here that if somebody is stealing from an organization, you don't let that go unchecked. There's ramifications for it. And some people really... Um, God bless them, they, they, they have great hearts, but they've checked their mind at the door, right? 
So mercy doesn't mean that we just let people rob from us and there's no consequences. Of course, there's consequences. Anybody know what I'm trying to tell you today? But I think there's another reason that Paul brings it up, and that is mentoring. He is warning Timothy about this same guy. He said, he, he, he did it to me, Timothy, and he'll do it to you. You must also must be aware of him, for he greatly resisted our words. So here Paul is, he's in isolation, he's at the end of his life, and concerned about Timothy, he passes some words of wisdom on to him. He said, now son, let me tell you, you better watch out for that. You know, David on his deathbed, some of the people that did David wrong, that David in his lifetime showed mercy to on his deathbed, said to Solomon, you better take care of them. You need to eliminate them. And, I, and he did mean by the sword. So sometimes we have to it's not ungracious to let people know that there are other people that have evil intentions. But then, and this is a little bit better, then Paul starts talking about mercy. He said, you know, it wasn't just Alexander. At first, at my first defense, nobody stood with me. When I first was arrested, nobody stood with me. Everybody forsook me. But you know what? I want God to forgive them. May it not be charged against them. And I'm going to tell you when we're at the end of the life or when we're in isolation and we're dealing and we're thinking back through life and we think back over our hurts and pains and all of those things, we want to get to the place that we say, I don't want the Lord to lay that to their charge. I, I, it, you, do you remember when Jesus died, what he prayed? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You remember what uh, the first Christian martyr Stephen prayed as he died? Lord, lay not the sin to their charge. And you know who was standing around while Stephen was praying that? Who was watching over the garments of those that were stoning Stephen? Who was right there as a rebel rouser saying, yeah, throw another stone. He was consenting to his death. You know who was right there? Paul. So at the end of his life, even though he had had many people that had forsaken him, he said, I, I, I forgive them and I want God to forgive them. He had learned that lesson. He got to that place. But it is a process to get to that place. And then, and then here's the last thing. Then comes the memory. He says, at first nobody stood with me. Everybody forsook me. But verse 17 Everybody forsook me. Nobody stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. The Lord stood with me. The Lord strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might heal. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And I'm going to tell you, when I'm isolated, Daddy, my mother gets mad at Daddy for singing this song. She gets, she gets weary, maybe mad is a strong word, she gets weary of him singing this because he likes to sing, when I'm growing old and feeble, stand by me. <laughs> and she just tells him, Travis, I've heard enough of that old and feeble business. But there's some truth in there. Everybody else forsook me. Nobody stood with me, but the Lord stood by me. 
and he delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. Aren't you glad? Listen, when you're, when you're isolated, when you're all alone, remember not the times that the devil got in a good shot. Remember the times that God delivered you out of the mouth of the lion. Remember the times that the Lord stood with you. Don't concentrate on those that didn't stand with you. Concentrate on the one that has stood with you. Don't think about the ones that let you down. Think about the one that has never let you down. And finally, that brings us, and this is, this is one of the, probably the greatest of all of these things that we need whenever we're in isolation. Confidence. Confidence. Paul said, I've lived a long time. I've been through a whole lot. And I've learned, verse 18, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, I'm convinced that it's all going to land on its feet. It's all going to be all right. Now Paul ended up, excuse me, ended up being beheaded for the gospel. And somebody that didn't understand might say, well, the Lord didn't deliver him from that. No, the Lord delivered him by that. <laughs> right? That's what got him from the woes of this earth to the glories of heaven. They said, what have I got to lose for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. Louisa was born in England, and um, at nine years old, she became a Christian, and she felt, uh, as she grew in her faith and, and her teenage years, she really felt a burden to become a missionary. And at 21, she she immigrated to the United States and she attended a revival and once again that, that call to missionary work came so strongly and so she started to prepare and make plans to go to China. But her plans and her hopes were dashed because she had poor health and she was not able to go to China. Not long after that she met a, met a man and they fell in love and married and had a little girl and when the little girl was four years old, Louisa and her husband and her little daughter, Lily, went on a picnic uh, down by the uh, coast. And her husband saw a child drowning in the ocean. And so he jumped in to save the child. And he drowned. And there she was, a widow at a young age. And had a little four-year-old girl to raise. And she still felt the call of God despite her health and despite being a widow and despite having a young child. She still felt the call of God. And she and Lily, four-year-old Lily, went to South Africa to the mission field. It was while she was on the mission field that she penned these words. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. 
just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. While she was on the mission field, she met, she was there 15 years, she met and married another man, and he was a pastor that came back home and and pastored because of ill health, again, that plagued her throughout her life. Throughout her life, ill health forced him to come back. He pastored Methodist Church back in the United States. And then they went to a revival meeting, a, a, a convention. And they both still felt the call of God so strong to be missionaries that once again they left and went to Rhodesia. And she said, in connection with this whole mission, there are glorious possibilities One cannot in the face of the peculiar difficulties help saying, who is sufficient for these things? But with simple confidence and trust, we may and do say, our sufficiency is of God. So here was her story throughout her life and at the end of her life. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me and will be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace. To trust Him more. Where do we get consolation in isolation? By trusting Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we trust and hope, dear Lord, that from Your Word we have learned when we're, what time we're afraid, what time we're lonely, what time that we feel shut in, or shut out, or shut up, that, Lord, we look to you and realize that from you we can find companionship and comfort and confidence. We thank you for it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.